Welcome to the Hot Isle. My name is Brent Piatti, and with me as always, my trusty sidekick. Uh, that's Brian Carpenter. Yeah, yes it is. Not a trusty sidekick. I'm not Robin. No, you're definitely trusty. Knock it off. I can always count on you, for episode sure. Episode 5 is about to be the last episode, if you keep this up. <laughs> so, you know, our goal today is to is to really get those synapses firing and educate you on, on all things that are trending in IT and the digital business space. And today is uh, 19 June or June 19th in the civilian world. Uh, but today's topics that we want to cover are things like DevOps. We're going to go over EMC code, what it is and why you should care. Things open sourcey containers. And then with us, we've got a very special guest by the name of Josh Bernstein. So uh, without further ado, Josh, I want to introduce you. Uh, Josh just came to EMC from Apple, and uh, Josh, go ahead and introduce yourself to to our listeners out there. Sure. So I'm uh, Joshua Bernstein, as uh, Brent alluded to. I uh, just joined EMC about a month ago from Apple uh, as a part of the Siri team, and I'm a part of uh, ETD here at EMC, and uh, as and I'm a, the new VP of Technical Strategy in that division. So I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to talk about EMC code and all things containers and open source. And it should be fun. Awesome. So part of the Siri team. So if I ask Siri, who's Joshua Bernstein, would she (laughs) reply back to me? She will reply back to you, but she will not know who I am. That's (laughs) That's too bad. You need to inject some of that code in there just to make her know what's up. Do we have any, are there any special Easter eggs? Like does, you know, Siri talk about herself if you ask her certain things like, you know, hey Siri, what are you? And she's like, you know. I'm just, that, a girl. Really I'm, just a, I'm just a girl in a box. I'm know? just a girl in a box. If you ask her, she has a lot of existential questions. We wrote. Like if you ask her what she's wearing, she comes back with silicate between two pieces of silicone, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, we used to have some good Easter eggs, but um, over the years, we've kind of had to, we've been asked to to peel them out, so to speak. Oh, jeez. Everybody, Corporate. somebody has to ruin all the fun, right? This is why we can't have nice things. This is why, <laughs> and this is why we can't have Easter eggs. That's right. That's right. I'll tell you some funny stories over lunch one day. Okay. Yeah. Again, there are certain things that Josh and I are allowed to talk about that you people on the podcast can't hear. So um, we'll talk about that later and you can just wonder what it is. <laughs> wah, Sounds good. Wah, wah. Or if those people are listening and want to join us for lunch, we can do that too. Yeah. If you want to buy lunch, we'll tell you lots of secrets. Mm, All right. I like that. That's yeah. a good that idea. like a plan. Yeah. That's sushi, sushi for secrets. That's my new, that's my new, that's my, your new thing. That's my new scam. <laughs> that's really funny. Very good. So, Josh, again, thanks for joining us. So, so tell us about um, you know when you came over to EMC. What 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 attracted you to come over here from from the likes of Apple? Well, I think that um, you know some of the lessons that I learned in uh, helping build the platform there is that there's a big gap in this persistent space. Um, there's plenty of open source projects that do things like you know job scheduling and container management and so on and so forth. Um, but nobody does um, data persistence within containers, or really, you know, so- a software-defined mechanism for virtual machines in the OpenStack space. So um, when we kind of built this stack, um, we got to the persistence piece and just kind of skipped over it because we just couldn't find a uh, a great technology or a great piece of software that worked for us um, and solve those kinds of problems. And I think that EMC is just incredibly well positioned to deliver on that. Um, it was kind of the last engineering challenge I think we faced there, one of the last ones I saw, um, having spent four and a half years there. And uh, I wanted to come to EMC and do something different and really solve that problem for people because that, I think, is um, it's really important and it's been overlooked for, for a long enough period of time. So you've got a, a background in just kind of you know looking over, trolling over your, your LinkedIn. You've got a background in software and development. Um, you did some pretty cool stuff for the U of A. And yep. uh, you you went there as well. So uh, one of the one of the projects was the high rise project, which is some sort of satellite imaging. So what what's that all about? That's pretty cool. You know that was um, that was an honor and a privilege. High rise was the highest resolution camera to ever be sent into space. I think the native resolution on the imaging was like four gigapixels or something, just something obscene. And um, it was a part of the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that went into orbit around Mars. And um, it, that was an incredible project. Um, we, uh, we, the team that I was lucky enough to be a part of um, designed and built the image processing pipeline. So um, the images or the data would come down from the deep space net and be processed by our pipeline and then go out to the scientists. 
one of the really interesting things about um, part of that project was a lot of that data was made open source and freely available. So not only would the data just go to the scientific community, but it would also get posted on the website almost at the same time and allow um, kind of amateur astronomers to view and work on the data in real time and actually even send ideas back to us for mission plans. They could say things like, hey, you know, I downloaded this image and I put together this really cool topography or I really put together this really cool map. And I think it'd be neat if we could fly the orbiter this way and get a view with these settings or with this film for these reasons. And if it had enough scientific you know, basis, it would be reviewed, and then we would actually fly the spacecraft in the way that they suggested. Hmm. So it's kind of um, like an open source project for satellites. Yeah, it was, um, it was really cool. I mean, I, I was only, unfortunately, there for about nine or ten months before I moved to the Bay Area, but um, it was, those, those guys are fantastic. And, What's uh, the... It, What's the what's the um, I guess the receive rate? How how long does it take for a signal to go to and from to actually change something um, or communicate with that satellite? That's a good question. It's eight minutes, um, eight and a half minutes from here to Mars. Wow! And uh, for all of you playing the home game that want to check me on that, you can just take the distance from Earth to Mars and divide it by the speed of light, and it should be about eight minutes or so. Yeah, I just actually calculated that myself in my brain. You did? Yeah, <laughs> yeah we've got rain. I fact checked you, and you're good. Yeah, you guys don't have a fact check guy on the show or anything that does that for you? <laughs> no. Yeah, we're, okay. we're not. Yeah, uh, yeah the, our production rate is, is very low. Our budget is even lower. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But uh, no, that's actually a cool, it's kind of a cool segue. It's It's been working out very well here with our guests and the, their, their past. But um, I follow a website called This Day in Tech History. And on June 19th, 1976, the Viking 1 spacecraft entered into orbit around the planet Mars 10 months after being launched from Earth. So Viking 1 was the, the, the first U.S. spacecraft to land on Mars and the first spacecraft overall to successfully soft land and perform a mission on Mars. So that's kind of cool, right? The, from the high-rise project, um, linking right into the, the Viking 1 project. So you guys uh, are intrinsically linked. <laughs> That's a stretch, but I'll uh, I'll accept the praise, I guess. <laughs> Very good. So uh, again, so you you came over to to EMC to um, to to help you know with this persistence layer of things like uh, things like Docker. Um, so let's well, let's jump I into. Mean, you, may, you actually may be jumping a bit there. It's one of the things he may have come over for. But are there are there other parts of ETD that um, were interesting to you or EMC in general aside from? I guess this whole persistence in containers and containers in general? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, what attracted me to EMC was this ability to play with all the Lego bricks. Um, I think that there are many companies that sell one product, um, one brick, one toy, and I don't think that's interesting. I think that um, that kind of stifles creativity in the sales team, in the engineering teams, you know, in the whole company. Um, but EMC has really made um, some really interesting investments and some really interesting acquisitions that kind of give people the ability to play with multiple bricks, sometimes or multiple products, I guess, to complete the analogy, right, that even overlap with each other, right? You could argue um, part of Pivotal overlaps with VMware or vice versa, depending on what camp you come from. And um, I think that's incredibly respect- respectable, right? I mean, um, to make those kinds of bets and to demonstrate that kind of that kind of leadership and that kind of guidance on really wanting to change the company was just, um, I thought it was amazing. And I, it was just something I wanted to be a part of. So how familiar were you with EMC before you came here? <laughs> um, well, not very. Okay. Um, I, you know, Apple, my team at Apple was definitely not a customer. Um, and uh, I had very different perceptions of EMC before I came here. I think that the external perception is that still a very old, you know, old East Coast storage company. Um, but I was incredibly surprised with how um, progressive and how thoughtful people are here. Um, people really do want to change the company and drive the company into software. Um, and it surprised me a little bit because it's just not something that's as clear externally. So that, that's what really turned me on and got me excited. So, and, and as part of your, obviously during the interview, interview process, there's, there's wooing and there's uh, lots of wooing and probably lots of sushi for secrets and things like that. And also, um, they, you know, they're probably doing a lot to try to expose you to EMC as a whole. What, is there any part of EMC that when you saw it, uh, you know, during interviewing, 
um, let's say outside of container persistence and things like that, is there a product or any other part of EMC that really kind of, you went, wow, that's super cool. I had no idea they'd be doing that, but that's great. Yeah. I mean, um, two products really struck me hard. Um, one of them was, um, was Scale.io, which, um, you know, I started right around EMC World, and when they announced it was going to be free and frictionless, like, that's a game changer. I, you know, for, for a company like EMC to make that bet um, was incredible. Um, I think it got a huge reaction from the community. I think there's over 7,000 downloads of it as of last week. Um, that was incredible. Um, what really also drew me was ECS and, and um, EMC's play with the object store. There's very few object stores that I've seen in the industry that have the potential and the capability that ECS has. Um, it's incredibly well-poised. I'm incredibly excited about it. And um, I think that we can, we can get it to be something that's just a standard ubiquitous platform. You know, it, it has the capability to do object, of course, which is kind of how it's always pitched. But there's a file component to it. There's a block component to it. There's an HDFS component to it. There's all these protocols that you can layer on top of it to make it incredibly flexible and do things you know like traditional traditional NFS or traditional file file system products can't do. And so that that was really really exciting. I'm glad to know that you're plugged into ECS because I've actually got some things in the field from a you know since we're in pre-sales um, uh, that I actually have needs there that are not quite accomplished. So you're going to help me push those through, right? So we're going to try to get those done. Let's talk about it. Yeah, it'd be great. I mean, one of the nice things that they've given me, for better or for worse, is kind of um, contacts directly with the upper-level execs. And and, um, I've spent a lot of time with Monavir, and I've spent a lot of time with his team. Um, So I would love to help out in any way I can. Yeah, we definitely need to get the CAS API completed. And I don't have updated information on it, but i got to get some stuff there because um, there's a lot of use cases with uh, with trying to get people off the old... uh, what is it, the Sentara or whatever? Sentara, yep. Sentara. Uh, and getting that CAS API completed and getting people off the old Sentara is a huge use case for uh, getting ECS. And uh, frankly, stuff like Cloud Boost and stuff like Cloud Array and all those things that are tearing into object. Yep. Um, I love ECS because of that. Like every time I'm like, they're, they're like, but I can't I can't send my data to the cloud because I'm I'm in PII and all these kind of security rules. Great, go get an ECS, you're done. You're, you're your own Amazon, peace out. Right. Let's go. So I did, I did digress and divert Brent off of uh, another really sexy topic, which is a DevOps. Um, my key question for you, I ask everybody this, is like, so we just, like, in the parts list, we buy, we sell DevOps, right? Like, do we sell, like, one DevOps, or do we sell a product that is a DevOps, or that's not how it works, right? Because I want two of those. Yeah, two DevOps. You want, you want two DevOps? Do two you get DevOps, a discount? Please. Is there, like, an increasing tier discount right, as you go so up? Zero to ten. One to ten is one price tier. And then 11 to 50 is the next price tier. I see. 51 to 100. But once you get over 101 DevOps, it's a flat rate. It's super a flat low rate. cost. Mm-hmm. You're, extreme, you're extremely happy customer. So we tend to, yeah, we do like to sell it like that. So I think we um, should move towards the utility model personally. Yeah, just rent yeah. out. Just rent a DevOps. Just rent out yeah. people. Yeah. OpEx really your DevOps right here. <laughs> That's funny. So anyways, I probably just made a bunch of people cringe and I apologize. It's a, <laughs> it's a fun joke to make the smart people mad. It's really funny. So, I I mean, I think that um, people ask me that all the time, or now they ask me all that all the time, because before EMC, nobody uses the word DevOps, right? People just kind of do it. Um, But really, to me, um, DevOps is an operational model. It's it's an organization, and it's a way that things get done from the infrastructure side. Um, If you wanted to kind of... uh, quantify it or if you wanted to put something on it I would call it an, an abstraction of infrastructure away from applications um, and what that allows the oper- the operators to do is um, change pieces out underneath the application without the application really knowing and so it it really empowers this, this level of agility or adds this level of agility in um, in, in the for the operations folks um, so I, I think I think people try to sell it and talk about it, but it's a mindset more than it is anything else. Um, older vertically integrated companies have, you know, like one vertical group that just does storage, one vertical group that just does network, one vertical group that does compute. Um, in a real true DevOps model, everybody can do everything. There isn't really these distinctions and these rules and this hierarchy around how to get stuff done. And so it's all done in the vein of moving quickly and adapting to technologies. Um, and so that, that's what DevOps means to me. 
And so, yeah, very but, good. Yeah, go ahead, Brett. No, I was just going to say, you know, you talked about moving quickly, and and I think that's that's a big part of the you know the notion of DevOps is is moving quickly, reacting quickly, having multiple iterations, failing fast, um, and cheap. So yeah, fast and cheap, right? The quicker, the better. Yeah. Um, so you know, in your work um, in at Apple, what uh, what was the the culture of DevOps there? Oh, I mean, Apple is, you know, Apple is one of those companies that's just on the cutting edge operationally. Um, I was really lucky enough to work with a group of people in Siri that were just wicked smart. Um, we had a very, very small number of people that operated arguably one of the world's largest platforms. Um, and, you know, everybody on the team was capable of, you know, working on every piece of the infrastructure. Uh, of course, we had you know a guy that was kind of geared toward network and a guy that was kind of geared towards compute, um, but really everybody could do anything. And so, when you're trying to scale and you're trying to operate um, operate a large environment with a very very low overhead, um, you have to have those kinds of people on your staff. You can't have you know 600 people in storage and 600 people in network because when something goes down. Um, you know, you all get in a room and you all point fingers. Or more importantly, um, if you want to change something, if you want to make progress, then um, you're, you're just you're slowed down by that. Um, so, so Apple has a has a phenomenal operational co- culture inside of it. Um, I think the world of those guys, and and I think that they will continue to do great things. So on the on the theme of of DevOps again. So Gene Kim, the author of the Phoenix Project. Uh, he made a quote that said, organizations with high-performing DevOps are two times more likely to exceed profitability, market share, and productivity goals, and 50% higher market capitalization growth over three years. Do you think that is true, a true statement? Um, and, and what did you see the impact being um, with your past usage of, of things like DevOps? Wow. Well, I don't, know that I'd, uh, I don't know that I could speak to the actual measurement of those numbers. Um, I believe it though, you know, in theory, I think that, um, I think that, a, a an incredibly well-skilled DevOps team, um, can far exceed, uh, you know, the, the overhead costs, the operational costs, all that stuff of substantially larger teams. So, um, I love the statistic. Yeah. I think um, I agree with it in principle. I I don't know that I've ever measured it personally. Yeah, and and to me, if you simplify it a bit, right, and um, put it in you know my simple terms, it's if you leverage something like DevOps, your ability to respond to the business has to be more profitable than not doing it. Well, that's the job. I mean, that's the job of an operations team is to mm-hmm. respond to the needs of the business, right? And um, and traditionally, though, response is uh, actually you know holding up a big sign that says no. And then going back and figuring out a way to make them conform to you as compared to the other way around or everything takes too long, stuff like that. Well, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there, uh, whether or not you realize it. But um, the, the, the ops team in the business should operate as one cohesive unit, right? It's not us versus them. It's, you know, we're all in this together. We all generally work for the same team, right? Um, so why don't we work together? My job is to empower you to go do what you do. And your job is to communicate with me so that I can be there for you. And when you when you just you know bang heads together, um, it, nobody's happy. None of that's productive. And so, sure. so and go ahead, Brent. But I mean, I, let me get this one in here if you don't mind. Yeah, but go you, ahead. You're, you just said it, and you're gonna you you put me right into a question I had. Your job is to empower me. I am. I'm a CIO. I just read the Wall Street Journal, and uh, there was something in there that says maybe it was CIO magazine. And it says, I need a DevOps, right? So we're back to that question earlier. Um, and, you know, so tell me in a simple story, how do I go educate myself on what that is? Um, how do I show my teams um, how to enable themselves, whether it be through tools or through methodologies and things like that? And how do you um, get the message or the motivation across to that team to explain to them what the effective result is of what they're learning? So as a CIO, right, you're trying to press, you're trying to change your culture as a CIO, you know, maybe if you, if simply put, right? I mean, there's to, there's tons of nuances. How would you kind of do that in a short story? Um, that's a good question. Um, so I, I'm going to pass along a little bit of advice. Or my my mentor and my my previous employer um, used to tell us that guys, look, if we're doing our job right, we should be sitting on the beach drinking margaritas. 
right? And so everything, I know that's kind of silly, you know, maybe to say to a CIO of a, of a large enterprise customer, but if the ops team is doing the job right, then everything kind of takes care of itself. Um, and, you know, that we never actually got to sit on the beach and have margaritas. But, I mean, I think that vision that he had was um, inc- incredible, you know. And, and I think that's a really good way to sum things up. Um, you should empower the business to operate on their own. You should make things like self-service. You should allow things to happen on demand. And um, you should have automation everywhere. You shouldn't have to have this giant complicated workflow where people have to go clickety-click through some UI to get something done. Um, that, that's never, it's never somebody's job to click buttons, right? It's somebody's job to sell products or operate an environment or write a piece, you know, write some software. Um, and so it's about empowerment. And I think that, that you can, um, I think that, you know, the sitting on the beach idea just kind of embodies that really well. That's a good motivator. I know I would be motivated by that. Hey, yeah, do you guys a good like job. That, right? Yeah, of course. And, and you can go sit on the beach or do whatever you want, right? This, right. this ginger doesn't go to the beach, but I get the story anyways, right? Like me, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be up under the cabana with no sun, but it's still the beach. It's yeah, kind of, I mean, sort the, of the point is, is you can do what you want, but, <laughs> but what it, I mean, maybe on a more practical, a practical matter, um, if you are freed up from the day-to-day overhead of, provisioning VMs and kickstarting servers for one-off deployments, you can apply those resources to do the next thing. Um, you know, there's a fabulous quote, and I'm going to paraphrase from Steve Jobs in the cafeteria, and it says something like, um, you know, when you do something wonderful, don't dwell on it too long. Just move on and see what's next. And I think that if you have a good DevOps model and a good DevOps structure, um, you can do that. You can do something really cool, and then you can move on and explore what's next rather than just being dragged with all the baggage of maintaining the first thing you built. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, I awesome. think we, 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 have to, we have to mention here that um, internal to EMC, we do have a, a DevOps practice. So we've got kind of the, the crawl, walk, run phase. Um, so we can come in and, and help our customers understand, hey, where are you in this in this transformation? How can we help you? Can we identify gaps and move you towards more of that automation and DevOps? Um, so uh, you had you had kind of hit on a key word there, uh, and that was automation. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you if you listen to um, some of the you know some of the stuff on on YouTube, John Allspaw and and uh, Paul Hammond, they said that the the first step to moving towards a true DevOps environment is automation. How true do you think that is? Oh, that's, I mean, that's 100% true. hundred. I mean, you can't have 110%. I mean, that, the engineer in me, I hate those kinds <laughs> of statements. But, but I mean, that is, that is absolutely paramount. Um, the first principles of DevOps is automate everything, right? If I have to do it once manually, fine. Twice, meh. Third time, shame on me, mm-hmm. right? Um, you have to have a management structure in place that allows people to invest a little bit more time in, in, in doing the automation so that the, the fifth and the 5,000th time is you know, less stressful, right? A lot of people are very much like, do it now, do it now, do it now. And so people say, well, if I, I can do it manually, you know, three, four clicks, but if I take a week, I can automate this so I never have to do it again. Yeah. Um, you have to automate. If you're not automating... Um, you're just doing something wrong. I mean, it just that, that bothers me as an engineer. You know? <laughs> Do you think there's such a thing as too small to automate? Like a business that has 30 VMs and has one IT guy. Um, uh, you know, is there is there truly such a thing as too small to automate? No, I don't. I think that there is um, differing degrees of automation. Um, I think, like in an environment where um, you know, like 30 VMs, um, it depends on the guy's business. If he's getting emails every day to create a new VM, then he should automate that. Now, does he need to automate the migration of all those 30 VMs to any cloud provider that his boss runs in and chooses? Maybe that's a step too far. Um, maybe that's not actually necessary. But um, it's uh, you got to have the automation. And it, even if you look at what VMware has done with vCenter, right, that's about automation. Right-click, create VM. That's a that's automation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so moving on from this topic, but it's a good segue. Automation. Um, 
EMC code, right? So this yeah. is kind of EMC's foray into open source. We've got a ton of really smart guys that are that are doing cool projects, whether it's SDKs or APIs, doing things that automate the the everyday use of things like Scale.io, Puppet, right? So what, first of all, what it, what is EMC code? What does it mean to you? You know, um, I'm uh, I'm just very new to this. Um, the team there is absolutely incredible. They um, they have really put together a um, a solid set and a solid attempt at demonstrating for the community that EMC is committed to open source and committed to writing tools that are not um, not specifically proprietary to EMC, which is I think what many people would think would happen. Um, I'm super excited about the work they're doing there. I think that um, they um, you know the, they they. They have a, a set of good practices around, you know, what does DevOps look like? What does writing applications with microservices for a Platform 3 world look like? Um, show me an example. Um, there's guys there that are doing phenomenal um, training sessions around going out to customer sites and showing customers how you set up automation and how you can um, quickly design and build um, applications for new tools like object stores. We talked about ECS earlier. Um, I think they're they're fantastic, and and I'm just excited to be a part of it. Do you, Brian? Have, what's your what's your experience with it? Have you have you dealt with any of those guys and yeah, used I mean, any of that stuff? I, I've got a lot of good friends in there. Uh, I think Josh and and Jonas uh, Jonas Roslin, I think just met yesterday. Um, I guess I officially met. Um, so uh, you know, th- there's a lot of guys that are in there that are doing a lot of cool things. I could you know I'd drop names and. Just, I'd have to go pick them all up afterwards, so I won't. Um, but, you know, there's uh, one of the things I like is like Kendrick Coleman. Uh, when you talk about what an application does and kind of the fire it creates in certain cases, Kendrick was having fun and he was using ECS and he made a photo booth that we used at EMC World. And the photo booth by itself was novel. The fact that it tweeted out a bunch of pictures of you was novel. The fact that it was, you know, written uh, probably in some sort of microservices on, on, uh, you know, on Pivotal using ECS to store the data, all great stuff. What it actually caused was it caused a bunch of marketing groups to call into to call into Kenny and say, "Hey, we we need that thing. Can we use that at OpenStack Conference? Can we use that at Oracle Open World? Can we do that? How do we? Can I come get it from you? Can you can you ship it to me?" And it, it causes a conversation internally where he's like, "I don't have to ship it to you. I can simply clone it over to you, rebrand it for your thing, and just move on." We're so used to having to pick up a VNX, put it in a box, and ship it to the next convention that people who do these marketing things don't even understand how easy it is for us to do something that directly interacts with the customers and gets them excited about our products. And it's all out there in the you know quote, you know air quotes cloud, right? So the, those kind of things are awesome. The pushing that they're doing internally, in my opinion, is extremely awesome. Uh, I think Josh is directly involved in some of those things, but you know they're they're pushing internally to get people like Viper, get Scale.io, and get you know VVNX, those kind of things, to be either open source or free and frictionless or those kind of things, so that we can help with adoption of these products and get people to learn about them in a new and different way. Right, um, Josh. I don't know if we're actually keeping track of this, but you mentioned earlier that we had like seven thousand downloads of Scale.io since we opened that up. There's also, um, I'm pretty sure it's called ECSTestDrive.com, and that's yep. actually where you can go and create an ECS account and log in and start playing with that. Are we also keeping track of how many people have adopted that? We are. That um, that project though is run a little bit outside of EMC code. Those guys um, kind of provide that service. Um, another team provides that service for the code team. Mm-hmm. Um, Understood. But, I was just wondering if we we're keeping track on it. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure somebody has stats on it somewhere. I personally do not. Yeah, that'd be fun. Um, we'll, we'll follow up on that and we'll put I'll, it out there. Somewhere. I'll tell you some stats I do have. I mean, uh, yeah, let me know. Follow up and let me know. Um, so, uh, code has over 25 repos. Um, it launched the first publicly facing GitHub site in all of EMC. There's 24, 25 repos there. And over two thousand download downloads of all the code projects that are published. Um, so they've they've done a tremendous amount of work to get something out there, and uh, I couldn't be happier to be a part of it. 
Yeah, and I mean, containerizing of certain things, uh, vagranting of certain things. I mean, what's great about it is you go, oh, yeah, EMC Code, they're out there tweeting, they're cool people. Um, I'm going to go see what they're doing. Uh, it forced people like me to go learn how to use Vagrant. It forced somebody like me to go try to learn more about containers to be able to use things that were containerized. Uh, and there's a couple of other ones that are you know different types of scripts. Um, one of the, There's a guy that I know that's writing a bunch of PowerShell scripts around scale, managing scale IO inside of oh, Hyper-V wow. and things like that. Um, and you know, that, that, the whole idea of that GitHub repo where people could do things like the dev high five, uh, where a customer or an EMCer can write something and then get recognized for it, get it published out there. People can pull it, they can add to it, you know, PR it back, all that kind of stuff, all good things. Um, I, you know, it's, it's one of the most exciting things to me about EMC right now. And I think it's part, it's kind of, I don't know if it's a it's a pivot point in how we're going to change, but it's certainly part of the big picture. Yeah, I, I'm I'm really excited about it. So, is there one project inside of code that you think is like, oh. man, that's the one that's going to run off? And I, <laughs> I, I, we're going to um, put you on the spot every once in a while. Wow, um, I was not prepared for that. Um, let's see, one project. I'll tell you the one, that, the most recent one that comes to mind. Anyway. Um, one of the things, and this goes back to something we were talking about earlier, is there's a there's a project on there called Rexray, and um, without getting too technical, the idea here is to provide a level of storage abstraction and contribute that abstraction back to the Docker community um, to allow people to better interact with storage arrays on demand um, when deploying containers. And it's a, it's like I said, it's an abstraction. So if we do our job right, we'll get the code contributed back into Docker. And that will empower, um, you know, better interaction with things like ECS and Scale.io and, and maybe even things like Extreme.io and, and uh, all the way back to Vmacs if people were so inclined to write plugins. Um, but it also just provides, the, um, provides an example for the community that, look, this isn't EMC specific. Um, this isn't just an API that only works with our platforms. It's for everybody to consume and everybody to use. And um, and so that that I think is um, one of the one of the biggest wins. And we've we've already gotten traction on the open pull request. We're having good discussions with the community. DockerCon is coming up next week. Um, I unfortunately will be traveling, but the entire EMC code team will be at DockerCon. Um, so we're we're very excited about what's going on there. Yeah, EMC is a sponsor of DockerCon, as a matter of fact. Yeah, that's right. Um, we uh, we have a forty five minute uh, like keynote session where we have I think three groups of people presenting different projects. Um, not all in code, too. By the way, it's um, some of the folks from the office of the CTO will be there. Um, we have one of the code guys speaking. It, it's going to be a, a phenomenal conference, and and uh, unfortunately, I have to travel. Otherwise, I would not miss it. Well, luckily, all those guys are on Twitter. They're going to be putting. They're going to be putting a bunch of that stuff out there for everybody to consume it as it is, as it's going down, um, which is cool. Um, it's also, do you, I don't even, I know Chad Sackich actually mentioned it either today or yesterday, um, that he's going to be putting up some blog posts here about DockerCon, a kind of surrounding DockerCon as a whole. Um, so, of course, everybody who knows how to get to Chad's virtual geek uh, blog can read about some of these things and consume them um, kind of passively as it was. Um, so is there, you know, like, for, again, sometimes you're talking to... Uh, you know, newbies here, right? And we know containers in general. We kind of know the story. We know what we're doing. I mean, even inside of Pivotal, there is a concept of a container. Um, and so we've been doing this quite some time at EMC, but we're still learning as EMCers how to kind of talk about containers. And if you don't work inside of EMC code, you're not an expert about that kind of stuff. You're, you're still kind of getting there. Um, explain to me the difference between something like Rexray uh, and like Flocker, which is being talked about right now. We kind of have a relationship there as well. And those same kind of integrations sort of with what you're talking about. So where, where does that differentiate? That's a good question. Um, so Flocker on a higher level is a container scheduler. Um, but one of the interesting or unique aspects of Flocker, the guys at Cluster HQ are great. Um, the one, one of the interesting things that, that Flocker has done is they've put a layer into their stack that attempts to do storage coordination um, or or mapping storage into containers. And so while Flocker has this overlap kind of with other things like other job schedulers like a, say a Marathon or a Kubernetes, um, the lower portion of it is tied to storage. Now their implementation is tied specifically to ZFS. Um, 
And so with that design, you're ultimately limited. Um, you're limited to the size of the volume based on the amount of disks on the current node you're running on. Um, and so you may be limited if you're not running completely uh, homogenous hardware that, you know, only this container will fit on these other nodes. So you have a lot of primitives there. Um, one of the other teams inside of uh, EMC, the, the, uh, the oil team, actually, the, the office of the CTO, wrote um, several plugins to Flocker to enable Flocker to actually leverage things like scale I.O. and ECS for data persistence, which gives you, you know, a lot more flexibility outside of, out of the limitations around ZFS. So um, that's another great contribution, even outside of code, how, how EMC has really um, talked about you know, being a software company, but really demonstrating it and really putting our money where our mouth is. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. So uh, there was actually a, a cool survey that ClusterHQ and DevOps.com did. Uh, they, they surveyed about 285 IT operation folks, and, and what they found was uh, in some way, shape, or form, 38% of, of those people were using containers. Uh, 71 expect to use containers in production in the next 12 months. And 92% of those people are investigating Docker uh, particularly. So it's definitely out there. People are, are using it, talking about it, intending to use it. And they're going to use it in production. So uh, we need to figure out how we can how we can. Um, help that community and also bring it in to, to work with things like Scale.io, Extreme.io, and the EMC portfolio. And I think we're doing uh, a very good job of that. Um, in particular, our, uh, one of our VPs of, of uh, advanced research and development, he's basically saying, guys, look, containers are an effective way of building and maintaining microservices. And, and we as EMC have to be committed to making it easier for, for everybody to leverage the power of containers. So uh, I think that says a whole lot of, of where we are and what we're doing in this space. Um, what in particular have you seen, Josh, that um, is leading you to believe that, that we're going to do more outside of Flocker and, and working with Cluster HQ and supporting the Docker community? Is there anything else that maybe we don't know about? Well, you have to go to DockerCon and hear our talk. Okay, fair enough. Um, but, but, you know, outside of that, I mean, I think what, what I've witnessed, you know, in a very short period of time being here, um, the absolute highest levels in the company are committed to this cause. Um, they're committed to it with staffing resources, with budgeting, with travel, with marketing dollars. Um, I mean, the level of commitment here is, is astounding. And if that's kind of the business side, if you're interested more in the technical stuff, go hear our talk at DockerCon. I think, um, I think that'll excite a lot of people. And is, is the charge for uh, containers in general, I assume that's that pretty much lives inside of either ETD or OCTO or both. I mean, the office of the CTO or ETD, or is it, is it even further live than just those two groups? Um, I think so. I mean, you know, ask, uh, ask your partner on the other side of the microphone what he sees or what he hears from customers. I mean, I think many, many people across the entire company are thinking about this Platform 3 model. Um, whether it be, you know, Platform 3 doesn't necessarily have to be containers, right? It could be something like an OpenStack deployment. It could be bare metal. Um, and I think that everybody's talking about it. And I think from, from the product teams that are adding features and say, okay, that's a great feature, but how do we make sure that works in a Platform 3 space? I mean, I, I think this talk about containers and about the next model of applications um, is, uh, is all over the company. And um, it's great. It's really great to see. And, and, you know, one of Code's tasks is to make sure that all of our customers and the entire community recognize what a commitment we're making to this. You know, from a very grassroots level, it would be, interest it would be easy for a company like EMC to go spend $5 million and buy a big keynote someplace and make a big sales pitch around it. Um, but that's not really what the community is about. We really want to make this grassroots. We want to make it spread virally. And um, I think the team has been incredibly successful so far. So on the on the notion or on the heels of of kind of an open source discussion outside of EMC, what is what is your favorite open source project today? Oh man, just any favorite project? Any favorite project? Gosh. So what, if he's gonna if you're gonna make him think about things outside of EMC, I have another outside of EMC question while we're at it. I was talking to a friend of a friend of a friend of yours that maybe you have a drone hobby. <laughs> Yeah, um, 
I I have a problem with drones and an automated aircraft. I think uh, it's funny that you follow up with that, but I I think um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you two. One of my my first open source project that I'm a fan of that's kind of pertinent to DevOps is is Mesos. Um, I think they technically and architect architecturally the Apache Mesos projects did it the right way. Personal opinion. Um, on a on a more broader note, um, my favorite project right now is probably the OpenPilot guys. Um, if you don't know, OpenPilot is a group of open source guys that um, write ground station software and flight control software, purely open source for drones, aircrafts, rockets, whatever you want to decide to put in the sky. And, um, you know, what a cool thing to get into, right? I mean, if you think about all the reaches where open source has gone, um, drones has got to be one of the coolest. And um, I'm uh, I'm proud to say I've contributed a little bit to that open pilot stuff. Um, one of the somebody said to me the other days, I think that you took the job at EMC because, of course, the flying field in the Bay Area where j- people fly drones is five minutes from the from the EMC office. And I, I I they're right. I mean, that was a contributing factor. <laughs> yeah, true story. So I actually have a very I, I I may not be into it as deep as you, and I you know my my contributions been with my credit card to like Amazon and uh, you know all the other places where I order parts. Uh, I also have a deep love of. Uh, of UAVs as they are. So I have a, I have a Phantom two and I've done a couple of upgrades to it. I have like some fly treks in it, which does, uh, essentially records to an SD card with so the GPS. The GPS? Do I don't have the... have the GPS enable one. I just let it record to an SD record card. Record to a card. Yeah. yeah. I should, you know what? I cheaped out and I'm embarrassed I know, myself. I know. Um, I know. so, uh, you know, I went ahead and, and tried to build the entire, uh, FPV system, which is first person view. Yep, so that yep. can do it all 5.8 gig return, you know, return. This thing is every time I fly it, somebody goes nuts just watching at the potential of stuff like this. The little, the little tiny ones that you can use inside your house and kind of when there's no wind are awesome to get started. Um, and it's kind of almost a story of how you can get started in any sort of community, right? You go buy the $30 one and see how much you love it. Right. And it's if you don't true. crash it a bunch and you learn how to do it and things like that, then you kind of grow from there. The $30 one is always your first love. And then you move into the next one, right? You get the ones that do the flips. Me, I was like, I need the iPad of, of drones because I can't suffer through this. So I just got a Phantom 2. And of course, immediately after they came out with like the Phantom 3 and all the other ones. And you got then, a Phantom 3, yeah. Yeah, the Inspire one. So a friend of mine was like, I need one and I need it ready to fly with first person view built into it. So he just bought a Phantom 3 for, or his wife just bought him a Phantom 3 for Father's That's Day. That's great. So I'll t- go I'll ahead. tell you, I have, to, I have to give my public service announcement with the Phantoms though. What if you what what DJI has done with the Phantoms is you know they they they're the Apple of Phantom or of drones right. What people don't realize and don't appreciate, or what they what they get themselves into trouble with, and Phantom owners have a bad rep in the community for this, is that um, these are not toys. The Phantom is big enough that if you don't understand what you're doing with it, you will hurt somebody. And and people that you know, it's amazing that you can pull this quad out of the box and you can fly at a thousand feet in the air. Um, doesn't mean you should. You definitely shouldn't, in fact, because it's against the law in the United States. Um, but people need to be safe. Read the directions. Ask questions. Don't be stupid. That's my public service announcement. For, but then, uh, but the Phantom, Phantom has done a couple of good things, right? They put in, because it has GPS, they essentially have the official five-mile markers around all the airports. So that That's you can't, new. You can't That's physically new. fly a Phantom into the air, airports as long as I've owned when it's been there, which has been since the Phantom Two, I think. So, um, you know the. The you know with the GoPro on it, I know there's privacy issues and things like that, and that's the fun part of the community is uh, there's always bad apples, right? There's always people who use the camera for the wrong reason. I yeah. bought one for fun. I actually was inspired by Nick Weaver, who now is at Intel, um, and uh, he wrote uh, you know Razor, for instance, uh, you know for Puppet and stuff like that. Sure. And I may have said that wrong. Sorry, Nick. Um, but you know he he got one. I saw what he did with it. I'm like, I have to have one of these, right? So I went and got one, and I used it to do film time lapse of my house being built. Right, oh, that's all cool. right around the house. I actually threw flew my house while it was still just boards and concrete, and that's it. Right, so flew right through the center of my house. Made some great videos of it, and I, I you know, I'm one of the people who use it the right way. But my new love for drones now is actually the these little pod racing things where people are using the goggles and doing high speed kind of like obstacle course racing. And I'm I'm so in love with it. I just told my wife, I'm like, I'm about to spend my money, and I have to have one of these. And That's of course, so she's so mad at me, but so I, have I have to have one. I have about uh, 
two. I think I'm over like thirteen or fourteen drones in my fleet. Oh, jeez. Um, I have a real problem. Like I said, um, I've been racing the quads for probably a year and a half now. Um, quads, hexes. In fact, I'm a. Uh, I'm going to plug my my friends at Catalyst Machine Works. Um, they're they've been gracious enough to sponsor me with their frame. Phenomenal airframe. If you want to go build your own quad, and then you can convert it to a hex later. Um, the quad is designed to be the fastest um, hexacopter, fastest quad frame in the industry. And um, if you don't believe us, you can follow our progress at fpvracing.tv, and you can check out the frame at Catalyst Machine Works. Um, great guys, Neil and 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 his his whole team there is just brilliant. They they just take a phenomenal approach to actually engineering something. And uh, maybe outside the the black sheep guys or Phantom. Um, that's I love that engineering piece. Okay, I'm so, gonna need to, I'm gonna need the hookup on this because I'll, I'll buy one what, right you now. You come out. You come out to the Bay Area. We're coming out. You you come out to the Bay Area. I'll give you one that you can fly. Oh, I love it. All right, I'll give you the goggles. I'll give you the whole setup. You fly it. I know where and, I'm gonna. Um, I know where I'm gonna be the second the quarter's over. Yeah, yes, I, I agree. Know. So, and, and we know what we just did. We I we lit, I open sourced a question about uh, um, drones, and look where I am now. Right, I'm fully engaged. The community embraced me and uh, I'm ready to go and I'm hooked and it's going to become a project and I'm going to invest my money. Right. You should see Brent's face. Brent could lock, could not look more bored though. Brent's like, no, nope, that's know, not boys. true. Brent loves to laugh I have a DJI Phantom me. three. You have a Phantom two. All right. So you're holding them three. Yes. No, yeah. no, I'm, I'm listening. I just want to hear what you guys do. Um, so, so my question is right. I, I fly mine in GPS mode all the time. And, and I got to tell you, so we've got a big flying community right around the corner from my house. They fly the big helicopters, yep. uh, big planes, gliders, all this stuff. I'm like the only drone flyer out there, and they absolutely hate it. Yeah, like it completely throws them off their game. They get all sorts of butt hurt when I'm out there, and I don't know why. Like I don't know why. It's jealous. These guys are flying stuff made out of. No, I'll, I'll um, tell you like, why. I'll tell you why. It's because you walked out there with a phantom. I think in that community, there's two things, right? Um, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like a right away issue when you go out to the airfield. Um, first of all, you're out there with a phantom, so they think you're a moron to start with. Um, second, because you have different maneuverability patterns than, say, an airplane, they don't yet trust that you know how to stay out of their way and vice versa because you're infinitely more um, maneuverable than they are, right? Mm-hmm. And and so that's the thing is phantom pilots go out to these fields, they bring the quad up right in the line of landing or or air traffic. And somebody hits it, right? And it's your fault because you just didn't really know the rules of the sky. Um, so I understand where they're coming from. Um, but I think that if you get to know them a little bit better and you get to go out there and talk to them, it's kind of like just engaging in the community and just saying, hey, look, I'd like to fly this thing here. I'd like to stay out of your way. Let's be cool. Let's figure out a way to do this. And I guarantee you that if, <laughs> the funny thing is if you show up the next day with a different quad, um, a lot of that stereotype will go away. There's a lot of people that have bought the Phantom, and the Phantom's gotten some terrible press, crashed on the White House lawn, um, arguably hit an airplane or something over in San Jose recently. Um, you don't see that happening with the pod racing quads, for example, right? Um, just a different, just different. Well, while so you let got, me ask you then. While you guys let me are ask talking you. about every, who, everybody who hates Brent at uh, the, the racing place over there, I just bought a Catalyst Machine Works uh, speed addict. There so, you go. Uh, you, that's the power of the internet. Thank you very did you much. Get, did you get the uh, the kit or did you get the quad? Just the frame. Just the frame. Okay. So well, the what? frame the frame is cool because it, it can come in a in an, a you can adopt it for a hex or you can adopt it for quad or you can buy all the pieces at once to do whatever you want. We'll see how it gets through my expenses, but we'll get it. We'll get it working. We'll get it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Brent, sorry for interrupting you. Go ahead. Yo, no, I gotta ask though. You know, flying in GPS mode is one thing. There's the manual mode for the DJI. Um, I want to know how the hell you do a flip. Like I've seen people do it, and I know it's possible with a phantom. Yeah, yeah, definitely, one hundred percent possible. It's, yeah, I think do a they, flip. I think that they changed the firmware; it's rigged because it's uh, it's very difficult. It's not it's not in GPS that. mode though. They're yeah. putting no, it in manual they, mode. They fly it. They fly it in manual mode, um, and with enough momentum, you can indeed flip those things. Now, you don't do it with a GoPro hanging off the bottom necessarily, um, but there are people that can do it. I cannot. Um, I can flip my other quads. Um, I the the Machine Works quad um, flips all the time, and in fact, I crash it all the time that way. Um, but it's it's a uh, 
I'll teach you. I'll tell you what. I'll extend the same invitation to you, Brent. You come out to the Bay Area. I'll give you a quad. We can fly with a little buddy box, and I'll teach you to flip a quad. Perfect. We're, we're on our way, and yep. we're, okay. staying, we're staying at your place. So I hope the sheets are clean. I hope there's room. There's plenty of room here. Yeah, we, we love to invite ourselves into people's houses. It's our, please, it's, it's kind please of our, do it. It's our shtick. So I, we didn't mean to digress. We, I definitely had to talk to you about uh, quads because I think it's a great thing. I love quad racing, and uh, it's my new favorite waste of money. And um, it's not but, a waste of money. It's brilliant. <laughs> uh, I'm speaking for my wife specifically. She thinks she thinks it's a waste. Well, my of wife money. hates it. Yeah. my wife absolutely hates it. Uh, it, it. You know, they hate to love what what you can do. So we we were talking about open source, and we talked about your favorite project in open source, and you mentioned Mesos. Um, yep. is there, what, you know, I think you may have mentioned, but what is it about Mesos, um, specifically that, you know, kind of drew you to it in the beginning? Um, and then, you know, did you contribute to Mesos at all? Have you done anything like that? That's a good question. Um, I, I think people I've worked with have contributed it. I personally have not contributed code to it. I've, uh, worked with giving those guys a lot of direction, but there's no code in that product with my name on it for sure. Um, what drew me to Mesos? So, I come from an HPC background, um, and in HPC, you have the same problem. You have jobs, and they need to be scheduled. Um, and it took me a long time to understand why Mesos was different than you know resource managers and job schedulers from the HPC days. And But once I did, and once I realized the model they've changed or the way that they flip things around, um, I was really attracted to it. The flexibility that it offers you is tremendous. Um, Mesos is a resource manager, and then if you want to run things like a Kubernetes or a uh, Docker Swarm or um, you know Brian's job job scheduling framework on top of it, they can all work together on the same top piece of hardware or the same the same platform. Maybe more applicable is like a a a, um, a Spark or another Hadoop framework that you can run alongside your compute framework. Um, it, it just has this, the abstraction is in the right place. And I, I think it's very elegant, elegantly done. Um, ben Hindeman, one of the co-founders of Mesos, deserves a lot of credit. He's substantially more articulate about it than I am. Um, but but you you got to respect what, what he and the rest of his team have done. Yeah, that's interesting. I know. So, so, so for those of you out there that don't know Mesos, it's an Apache open source project. Um, effectively, it's a, a data center operating system, right? Would that be a, a fair assessment of, of of Mesos? Yeah, we'll let them. We'll let them use their. <laughs> they have a phenomenal marketing team that is very articulately put. Um, sure, let's call it a data center operating system. I think that's great. What about what about um, Mesosphere? So that's the kind of. I don't know if it's newly released, but it's pretty new. It's based on Mesos. Uh, they just released the, uh, I guess, the tie-ins to AWS. Have you yeah. heard about Mesosphere and, and what's, what are your thoughts on it? Um, Florian and Toby, those guys are great guys that, that started that company. Um, they've been lucky enough to pull um, Ben out of the Amp Labs and some folks away from Twitter. And um, they have done tremendous work. I think that um, Mesos, up until a point, has solved kind of the big company problems very well. Um, but the value that they've added into the project around Kerberos authentication, around packaging up into you know this DCOS operating system, um, the UIs and the packaging that they've added on top of it, extending it out to Amazon, um, they've really added capabilities that I think a lot of the enterprise customers that you guys meet on a daily basis are going to ask about. Um, you know, people are going to ask about security and logging and all this, and, and now they've added this functionality around Kerberos. Um, that's huge. That's clearly part of a data center operating system and is differentiation on top of the open source stuff that, um, that, that needs to be there. And, and so I congratulate them. I think they've done a phenomenal job. Yeah, it's very cool. The technology just changing. Everything around, just in general, it's moving so fast. It's trying to figure out, where can I use this? How can I leverage this? You know, I know um, certainly in the EMC space and in Pivotal, right, the, the Pivotal Cloud Foundry, specifically Diego, has a lot of the functionality that's kind of out there in, in Mesos and Mesosphere. Um, but there are a lot of options, I guess, is the point. And, and uh, how do you use it to maximize efficiency and effectiveness and move towards that automated uh, infrastructure? And, you know, that's just one tool out there that can help you move towards that goal. 
So are, yeah. you, are you familiar all, uh, with uh, CoreOS as well? I am. So 30-second debate on CoreOS versus Docker or versus other, as it were. Well, remember that um, it's important to understand that CoreOS and Docker are, are um, uh, symbiotic, right? CoreOS is, is an operating system um, or a distribution like a Red Hat or an I guess, Ubuntu. I guess I meant Rocket specifically. Oh, Rocket. Oh, I'm not going to debate that with you on the air. Um, <laughs> I think that... Um, I think that uh, I'm not going to debate that with you on the air. Okay. But I think what, what CoreOS has done it augments and complements Mesos and Docker incredibly well. Um, you know, they they take a, a an approach where look, not everything is perfect in Red Hat. Red Hat takes a little while to kind of pick up these features from the com- the kernel or the community um, and the kernel. And so what they said is, we're going to package everything you need to run containers and make it a really really small um, distribution. And um, boy, have they done a phenomenal job. So is there is there something, I mean, as part of being somebody inside of ETD, right, you're looking at, um, and all the things that you've been tasked with, you clearly know tons about the open source community, you know tons about uh, automation, um, you know, the whole, you know, the whole DevOps type scenarios, things like that. You yep. have tons, you deep in, you know, deep information regarding containers. Is there something else you're keeping an eye on off to the side? Is there something else that's kind of you know piqued yours or all of EMC's interest that we're not really talking about just yet a ton? Maybe it's kind of the up and comer, um, as it were. Yeah, sure. So I think um, I'll give you two things. Um, you know, something that EMC may or may not get in the business of, I, I have no insight on, is um, you know white box switches and kind of this idea of automating networks. Um, I think this is this is a hard problem. I think there are a few phenomenal companies in the space that do this, um, but you know, software-defined networking is kind of a, a stretch term. But really, let's just talk about running Puppet on a switch. Let's just talk about how I deploy and manage my network and treating the switch like I treat another piece of the environment. Um, for years, we've had armies of network engineers that all they do is work on the network, and that automation stack never matches up at all with the automation stack like a puppet or a chef that's used to deploy a compute environment. And there's no reason why those can't be the same thing. And so it's, um, I- I'm very excited about what's going on in that space. Um, the guys at Cumulus have done a phenomenal job taking, uh, doing something similar to, to CoreOS and taking an operating system and taking packages and making it an operating system for switches. Um, so I think that's an area an area for sure to watch. Do you think that Facebook got it right by building, essentially specking out their entire own hardware, creating a bit of a, um, a, a designable chassis switch that has interchangeable parts depending on the need and writing their, an OS or ad- adapting an OS to it and deploying that in their environment? Is that, is that the right way to go about it for somebody like that? Um, I think that's a vision. I mean, there's not many companies in the world that have the resources to go design and build their own switch. So um, I'm going to say yes, they got it right. But I think that that's 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 you know a long, a really really long term plan. Eventually, those types of switches and that type of hardware will be commoditized, and so um, customers will be able to buy those parts and things off the shelf. You can already buy switches from several companies now that just is a piece of hardware that comes you know with no software. Um, Celestica and Acton are two examples off the top of my head, and. Um, and so I think Facebook is setting a really good example. But I think that there's, there's, you don't have to be a Facebook to do what they did. You can be a smaller company. You can be the guy that's running 30 VMs in his little startup and, and really see value out of it. And this principle of converging the switch, um, the switch automation and the compute automation goes back to what we talked about at the top of the hour, which was um, everything is automated and nobody's vertically integrated anymore. The DevOps team, everybody can do everything. And one of the ways that you do that is by making common tool sets across the platform. It sounds like a cool future. Um, it's not a future. I mean, I, there are plenty of people doing it right now. And um, I, I think it's, it's a part of the industry that doesn't get as much attention as it deserves. So is there, um, speaking of ETD, you know, as we kind of wrap, sure. this, as we yeah. wrap this bad boy up, um, well, let's define ETD first of all for all of us outside. Yeah, you know what? All of us outside of EMC. We said here that we're going to pique your interest. 
my opinion, <laughs> Google it. But um, or or maybe you're gonna uh, Siri it soon. When no, they, I'm when just they get their, tell when you. they get their search engine uh, done and rolled out or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, I I can't wait to watch those two giants fight that out. But the um, uh, ETD is Emerging Technologies Division. It encompasses uh, a vast, uh, actually quite a bit of our products, right? I mean, I'm probably not going to say I'm all right. I do want to talk to you. We're going to set it to the side, DSSD for a second. But, you know, Extreme IO, Scale IO, um, DSSD, uh, Viper, um, all the different parts of Viper. Scale, I think I said Scale IO already. I'm blanking on some of them. I ECS. Think ECS is in there. Yep. Um, and then, you know, some other things. Does ECI eventually fall into there, Caspian? I think so, Caspian, okay. that whole thing, yep. Yeah, so um, EMC code is a portion of ETD, or it's at least That's right. uh, it's parented in there as well. Um, and we've probably left some people off, and some product managers going to get really mad at me. I'm so sorry. We'll talk about, you know, get on the podcast, and we'll talk just about your product for a day if I really did forget you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but, you know, that, it's, a, it's a fantastic division. It is about emerging technologies. And we are trying to clearly trying to completely redefine. And part of that is bringing in people like Josh, right? And it's very, it's a, it's an amazing story that somebody who is like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm essentially at Apple, which is like the cool kids shop is like, and I'm going to come to EMC, which is, you know, the story is it's no longer your father's storage company, right? It's not that rooted in, you know, Boston type company anymore. It's very much West coast, very much software and very much changing every day. So what are you doing? What, what, what's your, you know, you probably had like a, um, 180 day plan, maybe even <laughs> what are, what are they tasking you with? I know you may not be able to tell me everything until we go to eat lunch, but you know, what are you doing that you can talk about what's coming, what's changing? Um, those are great questions. I think there's, um, there's three aspects to that. The first one is, um, infusing some practical experience into the ETD products. Um, you know, we were, you know, if you look across the product lines that you mentioned, um, we, we want to make sure that that things like ECS and Scale.io are designed around, you know, DevOps in mind. We want to make sure the product managers are on board, that feature sets are being developed for, um, you know, for the community, for our customers that follow on this automation principle. That's the first one, really lending a lot of um, experience and if I'm anything, I'm an opinionated, and um, you know, adding those kinds of opinions based on real operational experience into the products. Um, there's obviously also, you know, the first one or the second one is um, larger strategy. What else does EMC need to be doing to be relevant in the space? Do we um, need to go acquire some companies? Do we need to go make some investments? Do we? What needs to happen for us to to continue to grow the business and continue to demonstrate to our customers that that we are a different company than we were, you know, even 10 years ago. Um, and the third thing is um, something kind of undefined. They, they, um, they said to me, listen, Josh, we want you to come on board and we want you to go build something. And um, I haven't decided if that's going to be a house or a drone or a product yet, um, but I'm excited to work with a team and, and put something fun together, whether it be an internal project for employees at EMC, um, a project for the community, um, I, I don't know yet, but I'm really, really excited. Uh, I, I'm excited too. So like if, if you, cause you're going to listen to me and I, I'm important in your world. Um, you know, I, if you can get us to go ahead and get, make or acquire some sort of uh, software defined, uh, you know, switch, that would be fantastic. Or, you know, if that comes with something like bringing in brocade and having them, you know, create a hardware basis by which we can do some of those software things as a partner, you know, you don't want to exclude people like that from all the business we've been doing and all the things we'll continue to do. Um, sure. also EMC drones, I'm in hundred percent. Um, EMC drones. Yeah. EMC what, would drones. An EMC drone, what would an EMC drone look like to you? Well, it's gotta be blue. Cause that's cool. Um, it's gotta be blue. All and right. I, you know, it's gotta be software defined. Um, it's, they're all know, software defined. Exactly. Yeah. So we're, we're good there. Um, the thing that makes it EMC-ish is that uh, the storage on it that I'm recording my video on is object-based, and it's got a little <laughs> tiny, it's got a little tiny copy of ECS running in a container on a CPU inside there. Okay. Right. Let's do it. Yeah, let's. let's I think it. that'd be fun. Uh, I've heard of I've heard of things that look a little bit like that that might exist that would get us started, anyways. Um, but uh, I, you know, all that stuff is super cool. Um, we actually Brent's over here just being like, I just want to fly my my Phantom. Yeah. Just, I don't. I don't. 
Wait, Wait, I, just, I don't. I don't want any trouble. I just want to fly it. Yeah, I just want the Phantom. As a fanboy, oh, I there can't it is. exactly. I can't exactly make fun of my uh, my my Phantom dumb. Uh, but the, uh, the 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 racing quad is definitely coming very very soon. Um, you know, maybe maybe it would be fun at a at an upcoming conference, maybe an EMC World, if we had uh, like a racing quad demo or something like that. Yeah, we'd have to figure out how to do, how to constrain that. But yeah, let's uh, figure it out. I, I think that would be super cool. Uh, and you guys come out to the Bay Area for Game of Drones. Game of Ooh. Drones. Boom. Look that up. I know you guys are both in front of your computer. All you guys at home listening, look it up right now. Game of Drones. You Game can laugh and make fun of me. It's fine, but. That's a thing. And so, and I think, you know, the other thing is for, for ETD specifically, when you talk about that community fo- focus thing, I literally just got off of, uh, maybe just a couple of weeks ago, I did a thing that Scott Pizer put out there called EMC STEM. And it was the idea of going into schools and teaching, you know, roughly middle schoolers Great about si- science, technology, engineering, math. What we did was we kind of had a preconceived lesson plan and we taught them about big data. One of the cool parts about it was at the beginning of the plan, uh, Dan O'Brien's group um, put out like a survey to the kids and asked them, gave them basically a sentiment analysis of where they stood regarding STEM. And then at the end of it, we gave them the exact same sentiment analysis. And you could see the shift of their confidence toward those things just in having a, a simple conversation about STEM. The kids at the beginning didn't know what STEM was. Uh, the kids at the beginning uh, weren't really, hey, I'm going to be in math and I'm going to be an engineer when I grew up. Afterwards, I really believe that these people can see how data and analytics and all of the things around what we do makes sense to their business as a, as a student today. And sure. so um, I loved it. Like I literally, I was scared to death of talking to these seventh graders when I walked in there. Um, they liked my jokes, so it was all cool. When I walked out, I wanted to go to another school the next day and do the same thing. It felt hugely impactful. So when you do put something out there, man, I'd, I'd point it towards the kids if I could in any way. Um, so that's my feedback to you regarding ETD and your projects. So I'm sure you can throw all those away if you want, or you can steal any of those ideas. Um, I'm going to go look up Game of Drones. Um, but in the meantime, we do need to wrap this thing up. Do you have any... Any parting uh, quips for the audience, Josh? Parting quips? I don't know. You've put me on the spot enough. Yeah, um, we do that. I, I think that the you know if I could leave leave the audience with a little bit of advice is that there's a lot of choice right now um, with um, you know Kubernetes and Mesos in this platform three space. Um, a lot of people get this like paralysis, design paralysis because they don't know which one to choose. Go pick one. Go learn about it, and then that'll lead you down the right path. Um, but I think, uh, I just encourage people to just pick one and go for it. Even if they're not convinced it's the right thing, um, you'll find that you can move quickly and you can switch to the next cool thing, the, the next shiny toy that comes out. Um, and, uh, make sure you guys take a look at what's going on with EMC at, at DockerCon next week. That's awesome. So, you know, challenges, go do something, go, t- go take one of these things and go happen, make it happen. Um, Find out about DockerCon or go if you're not already, you know, if you're not already going, hey, just go get a last minute plane flight and get out there. Um, and then, uh, Josh, we can't thank you enough for coming on. You know, you're new to EMC. We just randomly emailed you like, hey, would you like to be on a podcast? And here you are. Uh, <laughs> sure. So thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you know, on behalf of the Hot Isle, uh, I'm Brian Carpenter. And I'm Brent Piotti. We wish and you I'm a, Josh Bernstein. Yeah, and he is Josh Bernstein. He's awesome. So we wish you everybody a great weekend and we'll see you next week. Thanks, guys.